0: ladies and gentlemen it's time to kick off again so bow side holding stroke side in welcome back to the broken wars podcast and we have another one of our interviews today and Aaron, who do we have on
1: We have Jack Beaumont, who is captain of Leander and other fine institutions. I'm beginning to wonder exactly what we're doing with this podcast because it's gone from Loon and I talking complete and utter nonsense about rowing and each other to getting increasingly high-caliber guests uh, on. All of our guests have been wonderful, but Jack is our first Olympian.
0: Absolutely lovely guy to talk to. And some of the things he talks about really emphasize a lot of the stuff that we were trying to get into when we started this podcast. It's all about the joy of rowing, the joy of sport and the generalized goodness of the institutions in that sport that we want to, I think we want to tell people about and see if we can share as far and as wide as possible. I, th- I think we do have a, a little bit of a housekeeping about sort of potential rival podcasts, maybe?
1: We do. Um, Patricia Carswell, Girl on the River, has launched a podcast. And her first guest was was the mighty Zoe de Toledo, who every time I hear that wonderful name, a name to conjure with, I think of Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride, saying, you killed my father, prepare to die. This is the sword of my father, made in Toledo, Zoe de to Toledo. It all makes sense in my head. But Just... she has launched a podcast, and it is wonderful.
0: Fundamentally, I cannot think of that woman without thinking of Zorro Mosques.
1: Hey, that's pretty much where I'm coming from. We have a link to that podcast in as much as uh, one of us wrote the music for it. So if you don't like the theme tune... That would be my work. And I'll point out that I'm an, I'm an ex-rower who's done a lot of heavy mileage and my fingers don't work that well. But Patricia seemed quite happy with it.
0: Fair enough. I'm sure it's wonderful theme tune music. I haven't listened to it, actually.
1: It's kind of like Enter Sandman with, with a bit more kind of Devon Townsend feel. I, I really I really went for it on an acoustic guitar.
0: You're lying about
1: that, aren't you? I am completely lying about that. It's a, it's a gentle piece of pastoral evocation of what it feels like to launch on a summer's day when you just know that you're going to have a good outing. At least that's what I was thinking when I played it.
0: Gillian River, an absolute stalwart of the Ryan community, and I'm sure she is doing wonderful podcasts. So um, give her a listen. Um, I, th- I think pretty much that's it. I think we should just let get on with having a chat to Jack and, um, and let the man speak for himself.
1: I think that I think we're slowly working out in this podcast that when you and I get lost in long introductions and long outros, um, it's basically just us rambling and Jack's the star of the show here. We can come back in and basically when we do, we'll be saying we've been entirely vindicated and British Rowing should be ringing us any moment now to offer us contracts of work because all of the ideas that we had in the early podcasts are ones that Jack thoroughly endorses. Yeah. We'll let you listen to see how that turns out.
2: Yeah, when I was growing up, I thought it was pretty cool that I had a, a dad who was an Olympian. I remember watching the Olympics in, in uh, Athens and watching the four win. And I thought, well, that's really cool, I, that's, and I just started rowing then. I thought, if my dad could do that, they won, it's quite an exciting thing to be involved in. And that, that same year, I also went to Henley with my dad and met the guys who were about to go and win the Olympics. Um, got their autographs and got Jürgen's autograph at the same time and I was a little 10 year old kid thought it was amazing but rowing for me was it was a hobby it was something you know I loved going down to the club and Maidenhead loved going out on the water in whatever boat we could all fit into so it'd be a quad one day single the next you know just if there were five of us one person unfortunately had to go in a single but really we all (laughs) wanted to row in big boats together there was a lot of crashing a lot of capsizing a lot of Getting our bowels stuck underneath the underneath the pleasure boats that are moored up, a loss of getting stuck in a willow tree.
0: But it was—it's not just. (laughs)
2: Okay, yeah, I'll 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 tell you the story about that afterwards. Sorry, go on. (laughs) Say that was that was it, and it was fun. It was um, there was a really big bunch of juniors at the club at Maidenhead, and um, I was the youngest one by a couple of years, which meant that I was always either. If I wanted to race, I was either racing with people from other clubs in composite crews or in a single or racing really above my age category. I remember my first race being Maidenhead Junior Agassar. And because there was no one my age, we all kind of, we asked around the local clubs who has some 11-year-olds that you can spare for Jack to row with. And we got a composite of, I think it was like Maidenhead, Tideway Scholars, Eastern Excelsior and court school, and when you're racing in that age category, you're in mixed mixed crews. And we, I think we lost our first race. Uh, somehow they they had a repurchase system. I'm pretty sure we lost the second race too. But somehow ended up in the final. I think it's the main you know home advantage being at Maidenhead Rowing Club. We're lining up in the final against four girls and got absolutely doored by them. Yeah. So that's uh, that was my experience of my first experience of racing. My second experience was racing in a single skull, which was quite similar, not a lot better. Well, actually, it was probably a worse experience. I, I got through the heat at Molsey Junior Regatta. Fantastic. Got through to the final, again, lining up against a girl. I was having a really close, like, absolute humdinger, crowd pleaser through the um, enclosures of Molsey Junior Regatta before I capsized <laughs> and started to, started to cry while I waited for a safety boat to come and sort me out.
0: I, as as I have said to Aaron in his recent sort of like ventures into a single skull, that fundamentally, if you haven't capsized at some point, you you need to be trying harder. Um, yeah, okay. that's exactly it.
1: Oh, right okay I can I can get away with it when Lewin says that I'm not trying hard enough but when an, an actual international is going air and you should really be capsizing a lot more I'm so I, I just thought it was because I obviously have a wonderfully smooth technique but no i'm I'm not trying hard enough That's, I tell you um, what
2: um, it's still not something that goes away I was really close to capsizing today this afternoon on the lake at Calvashim. I was <laughs> I was rowing along in my single and I I don't know why I decided to like, change from one lane to the next. There must have been a reason for it. But I tried to move across lanes and hit a boy. One blade just went flying. And I was like, here we go. Crashed down onto the other side. That blade goes underwater. I thought, this <laughs> is happening. But fortunately, some, some um, divine intervention left me, <laughs> left me upright <laughs> and not getting absolutely rinsed but from the rest of the guys. So I was lucky today.
0: I'm. I'm so glad other people do that. That. That's just. That sounds like so many different things I've done. I mean, my my first ever regatta in a single was at Twickenham. I think it was rowing down to the start in a final. You, there there's basically a big eye by the st- yeah. the start, and I wasn't keeping a proper watch, and it was one of those Zen rowing moments. Oh, this is going really nicely. This is going really nicely. Crunch. And I basically just like wedged myself in the boughs of this willow tree that was overhanging the lake, and I really had to slam onto the footplate to get myself out of it. Um, but then I got absolutely demolished um, by, uh, by by somebody called Crouch, somebody Crouch from Tideway Ouch. Scullers. and I've I've, I've ne- never managed to uh, get over sort of like my dislike of Tideway Scullers ever since.
1: <laughs> yeah, you've mentioned them a few times. Can I just ask before we move back to Jack, who is actually the, the point and subject of this yes, interview. Sorry, this is. Um sorry, how, how many islands have you and IOTs have you actually crashed into? Because you're already being sued by Temple Island for saying that it was a danger to shipping. And now you're saying that you've also crashed into an island near Twickenham. Is there anything on the Thames that you haven't hit?
0: Um,
1: I'll take that as a no. Justin... Um or only cuz I was sitting in between you that's Yeah, you.
0: no. Um no, yeah. Th- I I do have a certain history of of um being in boats that have collided with stationary objects.
2: It sounds like you're really good at just testing the safety of the boats.
1: Yes. Yes,
2: we'll come. <laughs> it's really really important job actually, so
1: can I ask Jack, just to come back, you've kind of given us a brief potted history there. I came into rowing as as we've said on the podcast. I saw Steve Redgrave win his win his fifth gold medal, what we're now calling Redgrave's last stand. It hasn't quite caught on with the BBC yet, but we're hoping that it will. Went down to Agecroft the next day, was put on a on a on a, a rowing machine by Dennis to do a 2K test at eight o'clock in the morning, pulled a very measly 646. Um, and instantly fell in love with, with the sport as soon as I got in a boat. Was there a point where you started to realise I might be quite good at this? Because the reason I'm asking is my 2K my score went from 6.46 to 6.30 and never got any faster. I'm guessing you never had much trouble breaking seven minutes.
2: Well, there, okay, so like I said, my introduction to rowing wasn't the most successful. I was losing to the girls, falling in, um, I do remember my my first race I did win in the single, and it was it was actually um, it's my claim to fame really because it was um, against Tom Barris, who's now you're you know, fantastic single scholar, world championship bronze medalist. But I did beat him at Burway Junior Regatta uh, in 2005, so <laughs> I can always keep that one. But I I struggled with rowing. I was not I wasn't that big when I was that age and. I actually decided to take a little bit of time. I, I didn't spend much time rowing for probably one winter because it was cold. I didn't really you know, enjoy it. I wanted to play rugby at school. That was fun with my mates and there was no one my age. But then there came a situation like the following summer where somebody was like, there a crew was one person down and my dad said, Jack, can you fill in for this? And I said, well, yeah, okay. And we won the race. And then also it being summer made it a lot more exciting and a lot more sort of palatable for a young teenager. And that's when I sort of, I'd say, fell in love with the sport a bit more. But I'd say I never really thought much beyond just rowing as a hobby until when my parents split up when I was about 14. And in that time, I thought I was pretty fed up with home life. And when you're a teenager, you know, there's all the different angst and different things that wind you up all the time. For me, my, the rowing club was somewhere where I was happy and I was with my mates and I was, I could get on the erg and beast myself or I could, you know, go on a run and try and beat my last time and just r- sort of forget about everything else. And in that time, that's when I felt like, oh, actually, I can I can do this pretty well. And I do remember my first sub seven k. For the first minute or so, I thought it might be a sub six, and then, <laughs> and then for the last, what, six minutes of it, I was probably going slower. Well, it was not very fast for the last six minutes. A complete a proper fly and die. I basically <laughs> saw it as a sprint, and mm. of course, we, as we all know, it's not. It's not that.
0: Yeah, a, a bit of a, a Giles Hine effort. We, we, <laughs> we, a friend of ours at Agecroft, you know just a member of the dev squad, very much a, a casual rower, was one of the people who entered into the Manchester Indoor Rowing Competition. At 450 metres gone, he was in the lead. I mean, he was, he was averaging like 128. And, and we were just like, what, what's Giles done? And, you know, he, he was up against these massive Russians that had come over from the Marine Technical Institute that, that sort of used to come over every year. And then it just went bang, and he pulled it in at about seven thirteen. We've uh, we, we've all seen those; they've
1: been great. We've seen it, and we've all we've all done it. But it was just the commentator going, "The big man's gone off like a rocket." Oh, he appears to be slowing down quite dramatically. <laughs> so there must have been a point then, presumably after you'd broken seven minutes, because otherwise I would have been a full international. Where you start to think, actually. i'm not i'm not that bad at this Uh, there's potential here or 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 was it a coach who kind of went actually i think i think you have something
2: yeah so when i was when i was about 14 so i just just done the sub seven actually um my my coach well not my coach i I trained with the sort of under 14s and unders at maidenhead rowing club and then there was a uh advanced group which was above mine and then there was the, what they called the high performance group which was the kind of sick formers uh age guys i remember i i was at marlow marlow town regatta and i'd just been racing i think i've lost actually but lost in the single and then the coach of the high performance group called me up and said hey jack um one of the guys who's meant to be seat racing for our four league quads this year has um, has got sick, so do you fancy coming down to Dorney tomorrow and we're gonna do some seat racing? I said, well, yeah, okay, that, that sounds great. i would never done a seat race in my life and these guys were <laughs> a lot older than me and a lot more experienced than me, but I thought, well, I'll come along. And I I had one seat race and I did win it, which got me into the B crew to try and qualify for Henley that year. And that, that was sort of when I thought, if I can, like, that's, that, that's a huge deal for me then, like trying to qualify for Henley. was was massive Um, and that was when I started to think if if the Tom Jost who was the head coach then um, if he sees potential in me and he's coached people to go to junior world championships if he sees potential in me that means I must be sort of on that trajectory
0: you know again sort of being aware of not sort of like really you as a person but just this name attached to lots of good sculling results um, sort of probably sort of like twenty ten twenty eleven twenty twelve. It seemed as though you you didn't fit into that kind of world class star or schoolboy rowing mo- mode. You were you were a club rower even as a junior. Is is that something that is is quite unique at the the higher end of rowing? Or
2: well, what we tend to find uh, what it tends to be is that the or in the sculling group, as we have now, is that the scullers are mostly from rowing clubs. Most of us learn to row at clubs and, and generally rode most of our rowing in a club. So I, I was at Maidenhead from most of my junior rowing. Um, I did row for Sir William Borle's school as well, because I went, I went there, but I, I only really rode there in the last, in the second half of my last year, because okay. I, I, was, I was glory hunting, um, and they were doing really well. Um, <laughs> So, and Tom Barris, he rode at Burway as a junior, so he was at Burway Rowing Club. John Collins was at Putney Town. Johnny Walton was at Leicester Rowing Club. Graham Thomas at Agecroft. Angus Groom at Walton Rowing Club. So we were all, all of us really were from, from clubs and not from, not from school rowing. And I think that tended to be a thing when we were younger too, was that if we were rowing and racing in sculling events, we were generally racing the clubs. And in the if you were at, say, National Schools for Gaster or something, the sweep events would be filled with all schools and we would it was like the sculling was for clubs i guess that's but that i guess comes from the fact that the you cannot enter henley if you're a club in the princess elizabeth challenge club you can only do you can only do the forley really
1: can can i just ask then what of the current group that you're with what proportion would you say came through a world-class start program and what proportion were already rowing at a club and then got funnelled up towards the high-performance programmes. Uh, would you be able to say off the top of your head? Um, I, I wouldn't be able to say for the whole
2: team, but from the sculling team, that raced in the last World Championships, it was just, just Graham Thomas who came from World Class Start, and the rest of us had kind of got into rowing anyway through our, through our clubs and then come up just through the sort of junior trial system and under-23 mm-hmm. trials
1: like that. When I joined Agecroft, it was basically a, a tin shed on the side of the Irwell um, where you literally got changed behind it as Geordie Hen parties whooped and hollered at you from the hotel opposite. And then by the time we left, because of the World Class Start program, it, it had developed into this gleaming boathouse and very well appointed. And and the idea was to funnel funnel people like Stuart and Brendan uh, Crean and Graham towards uh, and Zach Lee Green towards the GB squad, and I was I was just wondering what kind of, from those very altruistic idea of getting more people into rowing and, and then funneling them up towards the top of the mountain, I was just trying to get a sense of, of how many had actually made it. I know that Graham did. Brendan did quite well in, in the diamonds.
2: Yeah.
0: Again, it's probably like purely perception, but it, it seems a slightly more organic process where you got to. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like somebody came around to your school with a walk bike and say what can you do in six seconds right let's take you to the local club what can you do in the erg and like, I, I don't know that that seems like a much more almost naturalistic progression the the way you would expect things to be rather than kind of the. Like, you know, if, if, if you think about the Alex Gregory's and the most babies of the world, where you, you find out that, you know, there was clearly a programme that yeah. started with a bunch of 16-year-olds who showed some physiological promise and there's a pyramid at the top with a gold medal on it.
2: Um, yeah, well, I'd say if, if um, you know, the world-class start people had turned up to my school, they wouldn't have looked at me twice because I'm below their, um, their height. <laughs> Their yeah, high parameters, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't have got in. um But what I do feel for, I think world class start has its place, and I think that you know it has brought loads of fantastic athletes through. If you look to people like Alex Gregory or Mo or Helen Glover and Heather Stanning, and you know they've won loads of medals. I feel bad a little bit for them because the athletes, not because uh I just feel like they've missed out on some stuff that I got to do uh, through yeah. tub rowing. And, and I just had so much fun when I was rowing at Maidenhead, just going out, just racing around all the local regattas. Like It was like every week or every second week would be loading up the trailer off somewhere else, racing as many times as you could in the day, Know, getting disqualified and because you're on the wrong station, turning up late, doing that thing where you have you've somehow realised your race is clashing with another one, so you have to go and find your opposition and trying to rearrange it, all this sort yeah. of stuff, wacky races that we that you kind of don't do if you we don't do anymore because now everything is a six lane race, you know, at a FISA competition is very very different to sort of what I came from and what I learned. How, where I learned to race. I, it's also something I will definitely go back to when I finish rowing internationally because I love it.
0: I mean that that's absolutely fantastic to hear. I mean, so, yeah, I mean that that is that is a. I, I don't know. That almost seems quite bizarre sentiment from from someone who is in the full international program. Say, oh yeah, once I've stopped doing this, I'm going to be, you know, going to Henley Town visitors, and it, it seems as though a lot of people almost can't push themselves far enough away from it.
2: Yeah, well, I, bu- I bought a new boat um, probably about two years ago and I've, I'm a fairly lighter lighter member of the heavyweight team. I'm just under 90 kilos. So I bought a boat that goes up to 100 to make sure it can still accommodate me <laughs> <laughs> when I finish. <laughs> yeah.
0: that's, that's, that's more sensible, you know, speaking of someone who's uh, gone through that process. Talking about club rowing, like the club now, Leander, you have been selected as the the captain of that and you know i was hoping to get what is leander what is its history and why it matters to british rowing
1: sorry that was a bit sorry. of a right turn it, jack has just told us that he, he started rowing for fun he's going to go back to it for fun which is you know something we keep returning to and you've just basically asked him to give 150 years of history in a single paragraph and why it's important for him well
2: for, you know fortunately i've I brought with me um Lambeth Club, the first 200 years. Um, <laughs> which is, uh, I can read you the whole thing if you want. I can, so, in the bicentenary year, so two years ago, we had an option when we paid our membership to pay a bit extra for this book. It, they were very proud of being 200 years old. And um, so the club is a very big private members club. And it's interesting because it's almost like it's a big members club and hotel. With a rowing club on the side, that's how it could look from, from for some of the members. But really, it's a high performance training centre which aims to. The, the biggest aims of the club are to provide or, or bring athletes into the GB rowing team to win Olympic and World Championship medals. So that's that's number one, and second to that is to win Henley Royal and third to that is to get athletes to support athletes to win at Henley or get to the Olympic games and world championships. So really, uh, well, that, that's how it is today. And that's kind of how it's always been. It's just, if you look back it, at like maybe hundred, 200 years, it was more sort of amateur rowing and sort of rowing by the gentry, I suppose, who were not professionals and they were doing it kind of aristocracy and, the ones that were allowed to race at only Royal Regatta because they were not professionals. And um, there's a lot of history and tradition at the club. I'd say it's, um, in the last few years, has started to make some real changes towards being quite, um, what's the word, innovative, actually. But yeah, as captain, my role really is just to support the athletes there as best I can. So we have a huge bunch of athletes. We have probably about 50% of the senior GB rowing team are Leander members. And we also currently have about 60 athletes training day to day at the club. And those athletes are you know, aiming for the Olympic games in either 2021, 2024, maybe even 2028, or either that or they're aiming to try and win one of the intermediate events at Henley, or aiming to win the junior events at Henley, or maybe looking to try and make the GB rowing team for the under 23s. So we have a huge range of people at the club. And I want to, or my role is to try and support all of them, um, make sure they're happy, make sure they have everything they need and kind of help them help there to be an overlap between the senior athletes and the GB rowing team and the club athletes at, at Leander. Cause I think that's a, a real unique thing that we
1: have there. It's, it's a members only invitational club. How are people invited too is is it once you make, once you reach a certain standard of competition or you, you you're you're on the G B radar, someone taps you on the shoulder in the enclosures and, and says, you know, meet me behind the oak tree at three o'clock, we need to talk about your membership.
2: That's what I thought. Uh, when I was younger. I thought I thought you have to wait to be invited. I I'd always seen it like that, like at some point someone will say, If you're good enough, oh you should come and join Leander but actually it's uh, you can apply. There's on if you go onto the website, there's a page, a, a little bit says row for us. And there's an application form. We do look for rowers to who are kind of of the standard and showing the potential to be, you know, looking to trial for the senior team and be looking to try and win those intermediate events at Henley. But because of course, if if people aren't at that standard, they might not have a good time and would maybe be enjoying rowing better elsewhere. But it is, yeah. I thought when I was younger, and when I was sort of seventeen, I was thinking, "Hey, when, when are they going to ask me if, <laughs> if I want to come?" But then I realised, "Oh, maybe I should just fill in this application form on their website, <laughs> and right. someone might get it back to me." So actually, it, but I think it, I do think in the past that's that's how it used to work, but not okay. in not in my time.
1: Okay, and you mentioned it's become a bit more innovative could you just expand a little bit more on do you mean it's become more egalitarian in, in who it approaches or it's been more innovative in the way that the club is is run to accommodate kind of the changing needs of the 21st century you mentioned it's now like a, a hotel with a rowing club on the side uh, and there's obviously like a club that people can go and have lunch in I, I suppose as well so could you expand a little bit on that?
2: Well, I'd say both actually. So if you think about thirty years ago it was a club only for men. Now it, it's not that. It's um it's totally you know equal for anyone. We now have had two female captains, which has been great in the last since the last seven years. Innovative in rowing I think they've been quite innovative in that they actually run their own talent ID similar to World Class Up. Um, we 've had coaches go to local schools and and do that sort of thing, normally you know, with junior athletes and then, from a house side, yeah they 've realized you know, as with a lot of businesses it 's quite hard and and with members clubs it 's hard to get people to always be mem to pay membership. You need to give them something to be a member for of course, we have the a, a really big event on our doorstep every year, which is quite helpful to attract, attract people to come and use our toilets and maybe come for a drink before they go to the races. We have, but what what's happening at the moment, which is fantastic is we've, we've um, recently had a new general manager appointed who is an Olympic silver medalist rower himself, Al Heathcote, and yeah, he won a silver medal in Beijing in the eight, and he's brought some great new ideas with him how we're running the club, and what people used to see as um, quite a stuffy old gentleman's kind of lunch club is now turning into a bit more of quite a fun environment with holding new events like uh, Oktoberfest or um, they were hoping to have a Halloween party, but that COVID got in the way of that one. But there's, um, we're trying to turn into a direction of more of a um, fun and um, dynamic place to be and also trying to introduce more just local traffic to the club so just get people from henley using it and and make it a bit less exclusive
0: i mean again that does seem very different to the standard perception of leander which is it's the big palace at the end of the course to, to be honest one of the things that slightly dispelled that for me is is cam bucken on youtube and all the sort of videos he just did with there and it just seemed like a bunch of people just Sitting around
2: talking nonsense, eating very large amounts of food, yeah, uh, well, in between training sessions. That's exactly right. When I I came, I went there in 2012, and I was supposed to go to university that year, and then I I was watching the London Olympics and was so inspired by by it all. I saw Alan Campbell winning the bronze medal, and I just thought that was so awesome. The way he sort of fought that last <laughs> 200 meters, even though you could tell he didn't really have anything left to fight with, but he still did it and got over the line it was brilliant and um, watching also the men's eights race. And there was that moment when the British bow got ahead and, and the, the whole crowd just went mental. I remember my hair standing up on, on the ends and um, I saw all that. And I went home and withdrew my UCAS application actually because uh, I decided I wanted to try and make the next Olympics. I was so inspired by it and I thought well I'm a scholar the top scholars who have just raced at the Olympics apart from Allen, were all rowing for Leander really they had a great bunch of athletes who had just won the double skulls and the and the Prince of Wales at Henley so I thought well that's where I need to go but I thought so I applied and, and they said yeah come come at the start of September and I was nervous because I was 18 years old I've been I've been rowing at a club which I was home for me. Maidenhead was, I felt very comfortable there. I still, I could still go there now and it, I still do go there now and it's great. Um, I rode up my school, which again was, you know, it's with, with people, you know, very well. And I was nervous going there because I had the same perception that it was somewhere really serious. It wasn't, you know, it was going to be business like and it was going to be very high pressure with high expectations. And then I went in and realized it was just like any other rowing club. It was, it's just like any other rowing club. <laughs>
1: I, I know a little when I messaged you before I talked a little bit about the history of Leander and the gentleman with the gold ring who could speak French was was obviously a gentleman so of course you can let him in That this was back in the the very early 20th century when it, there was a very tight gentleman and professionals kind of um, division in the, in, in the sport and never the twain shall meet and um, we just lost to Bedford and I, I remember walking back behind Leander and I was walking past uh, the back entrance on the lane up towards the bridge, and there was a beautiful dog tied up outside—a a lovely little spaniel—and the the uh, the person ahead of me, about maybe twenty yards ahead of me, just just patted it and it wagged its tail, and he untied it. And I thought, oh, he's he's left it there while he's been watching the racing, and and just as I passed, he disappeared around the corner and over the bridge—a very portly gentleman in, in a in a in a Leander blazer and a and a boater and obviously had a very good lunch and had obviously uh, enjoyed some very fine vintages came out and said um, I say have have you seen a dog around here and I I went "Um, little spaniel kind of caramel colored about yay high just tied up by the fence and went, yes yes that's 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 my dog and I went oh um, I'm really sorry but I've just seen someone untie it and walk off with it and he went Oh, my God, my wife's going to kill me, and just walked back into the club. And I remember thinking, after racing and Agecroft and Bedford and the, the, the heat of the day, it was such a surreal experience. So thank you for clarifying that it's not all port and blazers and um, very, very serious discussions.
2: Wow, that's... Let me just say there's not – I'm not saying there's not. <laughs> there's not some of that going on uh, because we do have a large membership of uh, people that use the club. And what's interesting when you're an athlete there is there's kind of – if you go into the lobby, there's there are two ways you can go. You can go upstairs and there's a restaurant, a bar, um, a load of hotel rooms, um, a library, some meeting rooms. And then if you go left, it says athletes only, and that's where we have a gym, changing rooms, boat house. And the two can, you can, the two kind of run independently of each other. The staff go between the two, but, um, you don't really, you you could easily not, not mix with the members, but the special thing is the, the members, all, all the money that is raised through the, all the profits that come from the hospitality side, all goes into supporting the rowing program. And that's, that's quite a special thing. And that's why, um, we're really, really grateful for all of our members.
1: That's fair enough. I wasn't. I wasn't trying to get you to speak ill of them. I was just <laughs> my, my experiences of it was it, It's a very establishment kind of bastion, and and I mean the dog anecdote is true. But it, it's it's lovely to hear that it's not a tap on the shoulder. You'll do well with us, sort of thing. It's a kind of if you would like to come down and train with us, then please fill out the application form. And you know, oh, yeah, if,
2: absolutely yeah and then yeah exactly that and then also in terms of membership just to to use the club socially there we have we have two types of membership or two main types we have like full membership um to be a full member you have to have um, proved yourself with either your rowing prowess or services to rowing and that basically entitles you to wear a pink tie and pink socks and then uh, come and use the club whenever you want and then there's club membership which it's more just for anyone that wants to come and use the club. You basically can come and use the club all the same. You just kind of wear a pink tie and pink socks, which is for, you know, I'd recommend to anybody because it is a nice place to come. It is a good place to have meetings. We have good meeting rooms, there's really nice food in the restaurant and, and a great hotel, which you can get discounted rates with. So um, I, think, I think it's a good, a good membership to have.
1: Okay, well I'm not sure that I'm not sure that my performances for agecroft merit um or even the podcast so far merit services to rowing but uh, i'm I'm very clubbable, so i i will I will happily fill in a, a normal club membership form.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think if we ever get more than a 1,000 listens in an episode, may, maybe we should uh, uh, apply on a services <laughs> rowing basis.
2: I can um, propose your uh, application.
1: <laughs> yeah, and write a little note on the bottom saying, I've told them I've proposed it, but for God's sake, don't let them in. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you, you mentioned the role of the captain. And so, I mean, almost as like a representative for the athletes there and a you know maybe a mentor but that that seems as though it it must be a very very big commitment
2: well it it isn't isn't like when they when they elected me they said look we've had some captains in the past have stayed quite hands-off and some have been very involved it's up to you like we the last thing we want is you to take this job so seriously that you don't perform as you want to in Tokyo or anything like that um but For me, I don't find it that hard because I like being part of a club. I like something I've grown up with and always valued as being part of a a bigger rowing club. And I I think that other people enjoy that too and and want that support. So I quite like to, when I can go down there and see how people are getting on, just just be a friendly face and be someone that's um, there to give experience to, give um, sort of advice to people. Also go and see the coaches just to get a feel for how they're getting on, how how they're doing. And the other thing I do is um, I sit in on the committee meetings. So I'm not on the committee. I don't vote. But I can I, I come and sort of give my two pennies worth every few weeks, which is, is quite an interesting thing, thing to do as well.
0: And as, the, as the captain, as, as I suppose the, the guy who represents kind of the welfare of the of the rowers to the club i don't know if you listened to it but in, the, in our first or our second episode we did this like silly thing one of the things that gb athletes should be doing every now and again is heading out to head races in the provinces you know so Runcorn corn was mentioned and sort of like jumping in to not necessarily scratch boats but sort of like replacing people as the bowman or, or the three man in a quad or jumping in into middle pair in an eight or something and actually getting involved with those crews. In the theoretical idea, do you think that that would be a good thing for, for the rowers? Um, and in the practical sense of it, is there any way that that could ever happen?
2: I think it'd be fantastic i would I would jump at the opportunity. I would love to do it. I would really love to do it. My only issue is um I would hate to be the bowman that gets knocked out for the international guy that comes and takes their place uh, <laughs> in your club crew um but i think I think it could work. I think that it would just need some fresh thinking from uh from the British rowing coaches because I think you know it is I don't think it would take away anything from the training we do but i think it would be actually a really cool thing and and i just think i think rowing needs needs more community overlap and i think that especially you know there's a huge appetite in the british rowing community to see the national team i think that there's a lot of people get frustrated that british rowing's media and a lot of their content and stuff is about this national team that they never get to see they never get to meet them they don't get to come and watch final trials they don't um we, we rarely host events like okay british rowing's own money is not spent on the national team none, none of people's membership fees or anything like that goes towards running the performance program that all comes from the lottery but people still want to see it because uh, they're rowers and they love rowing yeah. so i think it i think it'd be great i would I jump at that one of my things I was hoping for when COVID hit and shut down all the training centers and and we were in lockdown for um March through to we didn't go back to Cavisham until September in that time I was thinking well if they can't bring us back together as one full team perhaps we can uh in crew boat in in like small groups we could station ourselves at different clubs around the country for a few weeks at a time and do something like that. I was hoping that would be um, a a good outcome, but they figured out a way to make us all go back to Cavaliers.
1: It's it's funny you should mention that because uh, um, our first episode, which was literally Loon and I talking over each other for about an hour and 40 minutes, we actually institute, we thought about the idea of almost an NFL style draft where you, (laughs) you sent out International rowers to to various clubs. We didn't quite work it out in the fine detail, like the, You know, the worst performing club in the in the country gets the pick of the best athlete. But when we were at Agecroft, we had um, Olivia Whittem, we we had Graham, we had Zach, we we had um, Big Stewart, we had Brendan, we had all of these immense athletes, and and it was incredibly inspiring to. Well, okay, it was actually incredibly soul crushing to row next to them on a rowing machine during an 18k and see that they were a good 10 seconds faster for 500 than you and you were pulling your socks off. But we just thought it would be, you know, I, I watched Pete Reed and, and, um, Andy Triggs Hodge rowing at Henley in the pair and seeing them up close and getting to watch them off the start line was, was massively thrilling. And you could, you know, the hair stood up on, on, on the back of my neck when I saw Redgrave win winners fifth and the Athens final that you talk about, but actually seeing these athletes in the flesh is massively inspiring. So to hear you say, yes, you know, we could do with more community overlap. We could do with a bit more presence maybe around the clubs um it's fantastic and there's also the the point um our club president at agecroft was a was a scot called dennis o'neill and if you ask him no matter where you've rode you, you could be doing you could be doing head of the river you could be doing you know head of head of the mars neptune you know delta or something like that he always holds the club record and one of us asked him if you hold all of these course records all over the country and all over the world, how come, how come Steve Redgrave's got all of these gold medals and you have none and you went, "Aye, Redgrave was a canny roar, but you never saw him at run corn in the rain. Did you? So, <laughs> so I don't know how you'd work it. I love the idea of if, if you couldn't get back together, you could station yourself at clubs and form little bubbles. I think that's great.
2: Yeah. I, I still think it would be something valuable. I, I, I kind of hope that someone from British Rowan listens to this because I see this as a challenge for them really that what can we be doing better to to overlap different parts of the sport more and the first thing to me I think is critical is to hold an open final trials and beyond that what I really think would work fantastically is to hold final trials with British Rowan championships as one open event that people because every year we get frustrated because it 's one event that we 're actually rowing in the u k that our families can come and watch without having to fly anywhere or take time off work or any of this, so we want we want crowds um, people want to see it there 's always an appetite there's when when there was Olympic trials in two thousand and twelve I was there on my bike along with probably five hundred other people who rocked up to come and watch, so people want to go and see it and i think I think people do want to do a British rowing championships just not really in October or, you know, after Henley or in a time that's getting in the way of their preparation for Henley because, rightly or wrongly, that's, that's more important to people than being a national champion. Um, but if you could have those events in one, I think that would be brilliant. Well, perhaps after, um, after the Games next year, I have to do a, a UK tour and go <laughs> jack on the road and go and, see, go and check out all the rowing clubs I can go and row at.
0: You mentioned sort of like you bought your sort your forever boat. Do you have a kind of a list of a bucket list of places that you want to row?
2: For me, when, when we were able to row again in, in, uh, I think, I think that people started being allowed to row again in May, but we weren't, we weren't allowed still risk rowing with saying, okay, it's only allowed to be recreational rowing at the moment. So people will see it as training. If you guys go out, but after a while they they let us, and the first thing I did was put my boat in my car and drive it to Maidenhead and go out for a row there yeah. i hadn't, be, hadn't been out rowing there for ages and it was it was really nice it was awesome actually beautiful water um, Rolf Harris was out in his garden, which was a bit weird because I thought he was still in prison he was he was outside and so I saw him but it was it was really nice so for me actually that was that that's a very special place for me to row and the other one it's the henley stretch because for me every year racing racing at henley has been a massive part of my of my rowing
1: it's it's a beautiful stretch of water even it's it's a beautiful stretch of water even when the regatta isn't there having having rowed through it on the length of the thames skull you've,
2: yeah. you've done that because that, that's something i would actually quite like to do is probably the length of the Thames. oh I,
1: I i recommend it i'm just i'm currently writing it up we, we rode from uh, letchlade down to Tower Bridge and it ended up being a quad. Lewin, Lewin was part of the quad, but he'd just started his teaching job, so in, in the end he couldn't quite do it. We were If you're thinking of doing it, you can launch from Cricklade, but we found it in the quad. The bends were so tight even at Lechlade that the first 40 miles from Lechlade to Oxford took us a, a lot longer than we, we thought that it would, and we broke it up over four days. We did 40 miles a day, so we got to see... Everything and it's it's one of the best experiences of, of my life. It was fantastic. I highly recommend it. yeah no, I'd I'd actually really like to do that. It's it's recommended. Lou I'll let I'd, I know that it still burns you inside that you had to drop out, but you know, I'm sure that one day in a double we will we will do it again, probably a lot slower than we did it a couple of years ago, but never mind. Well,
0: you you seem to have this idea of just rowing for fun down path. Is is there something that you know? Do you prefer like the big boats, or is, is there a favourite boat or a favourite setup that you have if you just want to go out and just have a paddle?
2: Right, if I would, if I could always choose, I'd be sitting in the bow seat of a quad. That's like my home. Uh, that's what I've done. It's what I can have done since I was sort of ten years old. It's, right. Okay. That's what I'm. I'm very used to doing. I feel really comfortable there, and I love it. I love seeing sort of six blades in front of you going in, hopefully at the right times. Um, I love the feeling of when the bow's kind of go up and down a bit. Uh, I definitely prefer rowing with people than than being in a single. Uh, if I we do have to spend a lot of time in singles training, and you know, I get it. I get. It means we can work on our own things and stuff, but I would always choose, if I could, to row, row in a crew boat with, okay. you know, be out in a team and be with be with other people.
0: Again, it, it's just like having been aware of you for a while, it, it's almost, always seemed as though you've been very much a dedicated sculler and you haven't really done that crossover into sweep or is, is that just an accident chance or is that that's,
2: you really prefer... I did actually have a little flirt with sweep <laughs> when I was a junior. So um, I learned to row, I learned to scull always. And my first time sweeping was Maidenhead um, Christmas 8s. Go out and well, lost. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then one year we decided, me and my, my friend Rob, who we were rowing with at Maidenhead, we decided we wanted to try and trial for the junior sweep team because we thought, we'd look back at how the junior team was picked and most years the scholars didn't actually get selected for the world championships. They, they got picked as a team, but then they went to the coop because they weren't, they said they weren't strong enough to go to the world championships. So we thought, well, if we can sweep, then we can get in the team, then we'll go to the world championships. So I did, I traveled in both uh, a pair and a single that year, but then they suggested this was actually my best ever rowing result because I won in the single and the pair in Boston oh, wow, and so I've in 10 years since then I've never I've not been that that was that was good but they they said that Jack we we we're, we're going to pick you for the sculling team anyway so that was my that was my um sweep, my little sweep that we I also did the pair at national schools for gaster that year um we again we won the double and the pair in our quick release wing rigger WinTech, which is perfect, you can finish the race, undo the levers, bang on the other riggers, and go. Um, and but then I looked at videos, videos of the races because my dad was filming. The sculling looked pretty good. The sweep looked appalling. Like <laughs> we won because we tried so so hard, and we were probably bigger than everyone or something. We were not rowing better. So I think. And really, since then, I've I've been sculling. I've I've had all my. I've always. Um, I've never really thought about moving sweeps since then because I've been normally getting the results I want to get sculling. Okay. And the the, what, the thing I envy of sweepers though is um, is like I said that I wouldn't choose to be in my single. They are they never in, are in singles because the smallest boat they'll go in really is pairs. Yeah. And I do envy that because I like I said I'd like to row with people.
1: At Agecroft, when I joined, there was a small group of scullers, and and they were sculling is the art, sweep or is just the bosh and the and the and and the crash. Is there a, a temperament or a personality type, or is is it a thing where it's? I know that that now in your setup, you all do a lot of training in in singles for for fitness and technical work, but is it an either or? you you're either a sweep person or you're a sculler or do you know people who who seem to have been able to move between the the two?
2: Well I'd say hopefully some of the sweepers are listening to this from our team I'd say that definitely all the scullers are the you know the stronger more skillful uh, better looking uh, (laughs) nicer funnier athletes and the sweepers you know they're second best no they there we have some we do have some athletes who have done a bit of both so there's um harry glenister he he was a sculler and is now sweeping if andrew andrew hodge did some sculling trials uh, uh, when i was younger i remember watching that and he he definitely did really really well and i think he was right up there with alan so i think there is crossover but like i said before about the scullers generally coming from clubs and the sweepers a lot of them having more come from the school setup a lot of them never really sculled when they were kids they never really learned to scull and haven't really spent much time in singles. So if they're, and they're terrified of the, the thought of going in one because mm-hmm. they'll likely do what I did this afternoon and nearly fall in. Like you, you said that that sculling's more the art and sweeps more the brute. Well, we, you know, we like to think ourselves as scullers of being able to just jump in a sweep boat and fly. But we, <laughs> we tried this a few years ago. We did the eights head. It must have been 2015. We thought, all right, let's do a scullers eight. So we were Leander three, I think, I think the other three and we we did a little warm-up with, with a warm-up race with a little head-to-head with Goldie to help them prepare for the prepare for the boat race and and we beat them which gave us false hope so we thought right we're gonna we're gonna beat uh <laughs> we're gonna beat all sweepers we're gonna and we we did not hold back with the chat we were telling them how we were going to win and how they never come close to us at the fours head in fours but we're gonna beat them in the eights and um we were really not very fast. <laughs> and for all of our chat, we really had to eat some humble pie afterwards because actually, it's. I used to think, oh, it's easy as a scholar. You know, if you're a scholar, you can sweep. Yeah, you can. You can get from A to B. Like, as a mode of transport, you can do it. But mm-hmm. They definitely have some skills that I didn't really appreciate. And maybe when I was younger and able to move the sweet boats, uh, I think that was just because I was... Quite strong at the time for a sixteen-year-old, rather than because I had any particular skill in it.
1: I think it's probably fair to say to 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 scholars and sweep or people who are, alike who are listening that there are there are nuances and subtleties in both in both forms of of, of being on the water. So we're not going to. We're not going to pander too much to stereotypes. Um, I'll, 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 although I'm sure that people who've, who've sculled and rode with me will say that y- you have no right to make those claims, Aaron. But, uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I, I certainly felt that in the whole... I, I, I don't think I ever reached a point where I stopped learning how to row. Certainly the year or three that I spent where I was spending a lot of time in the single... If, if I hadn't spent that time in a single I'd have never been able to row well in a pair an incredibly valuable experience in understanding how to move a boat
1: would you recommend Jack learning schooling as a young athlete and then moving to sweep rather than just because I, from what I remember I don't think you can sweep until you're 16 anyway can you
2: Yeah, I would. I would recommend sculling. Yeah, because it's there's definitely no harm, and mm. I think it's more symmetrical for for starters. I think that's a important thing. I think um, especially when you're when you're growing up, and yeah, it does teach you that sort of boatman skill or watermanship skills of having to be completely in control, and you know having to be totally aware of what's going on around you as well. If if you're you know, if you're never if you're a stroke sider and you're always in the stroke seat of your pair or whatever, you never you're never the one looking around. And, and then one day, maybe you actually get into that position where you're having to steer and, and all those sort of things. It, I I think learning to row in a single does teach you to take responsibility.
0: I mean, again, coming back to the sort of the club side of things, outside of Henley, do you, do you have any sort of particularly memorable sort of Wins and victories. I mean, the the races that you you really
2: enjoyed. well, for, well club rowing. uh I think, I think when I won the national schools regatta for the first time, that was that was really cool. Um, the the one where I beat Tom Barris in the single at uh, fairway <laughs> regatta. That was that was great. But then he didn't. Let, it, it didn't happen again for years. Every, like you were saying about you know when you go to a competition and you, you see. You, you go online on the website and you see the draw and yeah. you see Tom Barris from Burways. like, no, <laughs> just why is he coming to this regatta? Like, I was like so happy at the times when I <laughs> looked at the draw and he wasn't there. But then you realise they hadn't actually updated it and that was last year's draw and then uh, all those oh, sorts God, of things. Yeah, yeah. I think actually it was probably head races. I I think when, when I was a junior and rowing at Maidenhead, I, I raced that marlow long distance goals one time and that was quite a local race for us it's two locks up the river so we used to row there so we'd we'd get on our boats in maidenhead row through cookham up to marlow um and it's quite a long long way probably like seven or eight 8k probably up to up there and then i did the race and i remember going off as hard as i could and you know i, was, I just didn't really have a any fear then? So kind of just start the races like five k long, and just sprint off and hope for the best. And I just kept on going, and I like, kept on passing people, and thinking, Whoa, this is this is, must be going quite well." I got to the end, absolutely exhausted, and then came in. And when the results, you kind of wait for the results to come out on that, you know, sheet of paper they pin up somewhere or something like that. And and I saw that I was at the top, but not just not just of my category, but I'd won the whole head. And um, I couldn't believe it. I was like 16 years old, and I thought, "Well, this is like this shouldn't really happen." But and then they didn't know what to do because the winner of the head won a bottle of champagne, and I was too young, <laughs> 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 so they had to give it to my dad. <laughs> and that was that was a pretty exciting thing because the difference with head racing and and bagasse racing was that that tense waiting to find out the results and sometimes they were you know it wasn't just your division they'd have to wait for all the divisions to give you the results and all that stuff and that was and you'd be waiting around in your wet kit muddy muddy socks because you couldn't find your shoes when you came in and all this stuff and you'd be there waiting for your results and that was that was quite exciting you'd always have to look near the bottom and then look up to see what your name was because you didn't want to be disappointed by starting at the top either
0: (laughs) (laughs) I, I actually find that I'm, I'm almost exactly the opposite. I've, I've always found that to be the most frustrating thing about head races is that is that, you know, you, you go through just like this lung-bursting effort and then you, you've you just got this period of like, how did that go? How did that go? Because yeah. you can't really tell. No, I mean, somebody, you don't know. You know, even if you've just absolutely horizoned everyone you can see, you don't no. actually know how well you've done.
2: Uh, don 't um, get me wrong I think, I think that there's huge improvements that need to be made in how we run heads races I, I, having raced at the head of the trials i can 't believe i can 't believe we 're not not on like immediate finish results yet i, yeah, I just oh, don't yeah. I, I, I think it 's kind of indefensible of rowing to not have that because it's it 's not that high tech how, how, how do
0: they do it ahead of the trials
2: is it just i, I, I don 't know i think they might have had um. I'm not sure if they had a chip on our boat or if they just have a well, someone at the start and someone at the finish pressing a I button or something. You. I don't know. Just, just I'm not sure, could. but, they have, but they, t- they have immediate results. They have split times. They have all of this sort of stuff going on. Um, but even the first head race I ever did when I was young was in Pangborn, Pangborn Junior Skulls or something, and they had micro time and came off the water, and as soon as I was off the water, there was a screen with the results. So when you sometimes go to a head, and then it's the next day, sometimes the results coming out. I, I understand the volunteers working really hard, and and it's not always straightforward. People's numbers fall off, and people don't finish in the start order. I, I know it's, there's tough things to it, but I think um, the rowing world's screaming just for a bit of technology that will make that really easy.
0: Obviously, you are you're a fully fledged Olympian. I mean, to to look at the international rowing thing and sort of if we're talking about the future of rowing, if the IOC just said, uh, you know what, we don't really want rowing anymore, or it's got a completely changed format, rowing, visa really wouldn't be able to say any different. I mean, it, it, are there things that you think should be happening in the international um, set up of things, which would make rowing have a greater standing?
2: I, I think it's, good that they're proposing the coastal events. I do think that's good because it's, even if it doesn't improve our standing within, uh, our international within the IOC and for the Olympics, it will just increase participation in a different part of the sport, or, or at least bring more money to that part of the sport that's already happening. Loads of people do coastal rowing anyway in the UK. Um, it'd be great for them to have an opportunity to race internationally. Um, I think I think we should be more flexible with race distance. Mm-hmm. I I understand people want to do six lanes and two thousand meters and that rowing's a power endurance sport and blah blah blah. But I think if we want to be relevant we we need to get the viewers and I did hear a stat a while ago that actually rowing had really good viewing at the at the Rio Olympics. And or maybe it did, but um if you think about how many people, like how many household names you have as rowers, you know, it's not, it's not like there's people tuning in every weekend to watch rowing events. So I think what we could be doing better is having more personality showing in, within rowing, within rowers, I think having uh, more sort of live uh, interviews directly post-race or even pre-race would be make it quite exciting. Graham, Graham Thomas said something once, how he said he'd love to have start line interviews, and I think that would just be gold, wouldn't it? Can you imagine the single skulls are all lined up and <laughs> they ask him, well, who do you think is going to win this race? Well, I'm going to win, or any of this. <laughs> a, bit of, um, a bit of chat at the start. But really, I think there's, the challenges they have, are, one, it's very expensive. When, when there's an Olympic Games, it's very expensive to build a rowing course. Now, yeah. I I would be flexible myself, I don't I, I don't speak for the team or anyone else, but I would be happy to to race in whatever body of water over whatever distance they have, but um, and to say, to make that a much more attractive option to keep rowing. Now, I don't know whether many rowing fans would feel the same about watching if it was I don't know three hundred meters or um, or if it was only three lanes rather than six, or if it was I don't know, they had to go through a bridge or I don't know, anything weird like that, anything different. But um you know, it's only been in the last six years that all my racing is two thousand meters in a six lane course. I've grown up doing all sorts of different races anyway. So it's not yeah. like it's it's not like rowing can only be two thousand meters in six lanes. Most rowing that happens isn't that. So I think that I think that's important too, making it because I, what what we don't want is them to say, "Oh, rowing, you have you take up 550 people in the Olympic Village, um, we're getting rid of you." We, but also we don't. I don't think we want to limit the numbers. I think we need to make ourselves just an attractive sport that they want to keep.
1: Do you think your perspective on the distance? And rowing through bridges and having to navigate a bend or or whatever. Do you think that's informed because of because you came up through the sport the way you did? Because it was it was it was fun, because it was a release for you because because of the various things that were happening, but because you actually participated in the sport as as it has been. As it has been historically which is, which is going to, which is going to rivers with your boat on on your car, this head race is 6k this head race is is only one point three kilometers this 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 you know Hollingworth lake is like four hundred meters you know five hundred meters and've you've, you've got to really hold the boat up, not to hit the far bank after you cross the finish line sort of thing. do you think you, the, you, the way you came up in the sport has informed that perspective, and do you think that's a perspective um, that other others might not share?
2: I think it. I think it probably has shaped that a bit because I'm like I, like you said I've done I've been doing all sorts of different races um, and it was many 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 years before I rode on a 2k lake and did a six lane course sort of race. But I think also I just I, I see different events happening and different things they want to try and introduce. I've I raced in Germany in the um, Rowing Champions League, which is a sprint competition. I've raced. Um, you know, Henley doing head-to-head. I've raced um, big head races in different countries, and seen seeing how different things happen. And they can all be popular, and it doesn't have to be one 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 strict distance. But I do understand that they want there's people that want rowing to stay firm and stay stay doing the same thing. Because if we keep having to bend and keep having to and keep having to change, what are we losing our sort of own identity? But I don't think that we're losing it. I think that we're just diversifying and, and and not not really losing any identity because these are all things that are happening anyway. That like every it's not like a four hundred meter sprint is an innovative thing. It's something that happens every weekend in the summer That's all around up and down the country. That like that was my sort of thinking when with the power eight sprints was like what what was really innovative for that was the the coverage and that they had fantastic drone footage and cameras on the boats and stuff but actually doing a head-to-head race through a town over 400 meters is something that most clubs do as yep. their regatta um it's something we've all done like uh, many many times and um uh, so i think i think the way i think rowing will stay as a two kilometer race but i'm i'm excited to see i, ho- I hope that ioc accepts the proposal with the coastal rowing. I hope that that is something that happens in the next Olympics and it'll be be really interesting to to see that happen and see just how all the countries approach it
1: you're you're embracing the whole range of rowing which which is everything from match racing head to head it's the steeple chase of heads it's the 400 meter sprint it is the 2k distance uh, and you know you you're acknowledging the point that people will want to keep the 2K distance because world records are based on it and because it's a, it's, a, it's a firm standard that everyone can aspire to. But there might be flexibility in embracing the range of rowing that we all do week in, week out.
2: I think so. I think that, that's the biggest thing. It's like, it's, it's, not, it's not losing the sport. It's still the same sport. And I just think that the thing I'd like to see the most is that we stay with rowing in the Olympics, We stay with rowing in the Olympics with the same amount of people as we have. Rather than I'd rather that than than we lose people and stay at two thousand metres.
0: I I, there are so many different formats I, I think that I would dearly love to see fully televised. So I mean just like springs to mind is having an Olympics bumps weekend just like i don't know almost randomly sorting the crews or putting everybody in like into coxed fours and just getting them charging up and down rivers performance on natural waterways fully televised and again what you're talking about having boat uh, having cameras on the boats having drone footage i'd absolutely love to see that i I think that'd be incredibly popular i I think Um, it
2: would be i think i'll stay away from from the bumps i'm a bit I'm a bit afraid of the the collisions with other boats now. But uh, as a,
1: well, as a as <laughs> as the bow of a quad, you know, being your preferred seat, I, I, yeah. you, you're the man who you literally gets it in the small of the back if anything goes wrong. So. <laughs> yeah,
2: you don't want well, that.
0: Almost famous. I mean, famously, you 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 were involved in that. Seeing the conversations on Twitter because I kind of came to it secondhand, but apparently uh, I haven't seen this. There was there was an X-ray of of
2: your back yes. yeah I actually posted I posted the x-ray but I, I posted it a couple of years later just more as a cautionary tale to young young rowers out rowing just saying please oh, please look because I know you know I, if I go out to Maidenhead and go and sit in the launch with any of the coaches there's young rowers out enjoying rowing but they're all over the river and yeah. then they're, they're not always looking where they're going and they're sort of having near misses and little crashes and it's kind of funny and they're they're not going fast enough to hurt each other but It could, it can go really badly, and um, you know, we were on when this happened. It wasn't novice rowers. It was we were on on our final preparation camp for the World Championships. It was two. We were. It was like okay, me and Angus Groom were rowing a double. We were he he was a spare, and I was like the spare spare that year, and we crashed into the eight that went on to and win the World Championships. So it wasn't it wasn't like um, we were a bunch of novices going around like some really experienced athletes and it can kind of happen to happen to anyone. Yeah. yeah. For the sort of moment, like little uh, mistakes.
1: And there's a, there's a huge amount of weight in an eight as well, because I mean, it's, it's the best part of, of a ton. Um, oh, the, tell me the, about it. That must've stung a bit. I, I would imagine.
2: Yeah. It was the biggest sort of thud, the biggest sort of blunt bang you could ever feel. Cause it was the, bow of the boat what happened was um their bow kind of i don't i don't understand exactly how it happened it can't have been completely head-on because i was actually in the stroke seat mm. and um <laughs> the, and we had one of those boats that has a wing rigger from the front and a backstay and the we had we hit something and i thought oh no angus has hit us into a boy, and then <laughs> and then the next moment there's just this into my back and um what happened is the somehow the boat had kind of ricocheted off Angus's leg. And in, the, in that process, the bow ball and first few inches had snapped off. And then the kind of sharp, jaggedy bits just went <laughs> into, my, into my back. And, and then this weight of the... And it was, of course, like we didn't really know what happened. It was happening very quickly. And then the weight of the boat, because the boat had gone through in between the back state of <clears throat> Angus's rigour and over the wing... So the bow was like sat on our boat, so it tipped us over and we fell in. Um, and then it was that. That's when I realised I'm in quite a lot of pain, and um and it wasn't very good. So I kind of got slumped. I slumped over the bow of the eight, kind of. And then one of them realised in my nice white all-in-one that I was bleeding quite a lot. But then they were they were great actually. The eight were fantastic. Kept quite really calm and got. I think Matt Gottrell got in the water to help me out, um, and then they drove me back. and I I went to hospital and spent uh, a good few days in in Portuguese hospital.
1: Well, I'm I'm glad you came through it, but it, it's I mean it's never nice picking up an injury at the best of times, but picking up an injury that's essentially blunt force trauma by eight must was, was yeah pretty traumatic.
2: No, I did think. Well, when we got to hospital, we had a, I had a scan, um, and they said. I didn't really understand because everything's in portuguese and it was near enough exactly a year before the rio olympics i thought well they, they told me that i had um some fractures in my spine and i thought well that's it game over uh, no way i'm going to go to the olympics and at that point i didn't really know because it was all trying to be translated i didn't know what it meant for just life like general like movement um i hadn't been able to stand up yet i had been like Carried around on a board and unable to, uh, being told I'm not really allowed to move at all. So it was pretty terrifying for probably the first 24 hours before I saw a proper consultant who
1: actually explained what was going on. Thank you for talking about it um, and clearing it up. But yes, I, we're, we're, we are glad that you overcame it and came back.
2: Uh, thank you. I just think it's important to note for anyone, you know, little little accidents or what can be a little mistake can end up being quite a big problem, especially in rowing It's water sport. It's can, what what's normally a really gentle and nice and fun non-contact sport can very quickly turn just with very minor lapses in concentration. And I think it is important just to remember that because it's, you know, it can happen to anybody.
1: We, we had uh, Terence Chipchase talking um, about coxing and umpiring and and safety and he he made the very valid point that 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 the rowers and scholars themselves have to be aware that their their first role on the water is is to make sure that they are safe their crew is safe and everyone around them who's sharing their spaces is also acting in a safe and responsible way so yeah absolutely
0: it's always a question i kind of like to finish these these chats with which is what do you think rowing is doing is getting right right now what's it getting wrong and where do you think is the easiest win to make things
2: better i think i think what rowing is doing right is um well i've seen quite a lot of meme pages popping up recently <laughs> of i think that they are absolutely hilarious i think um uh well, I I actually deactivated my Instagram page a couple of months ago when I watched the social dilemma. But before <laughs> before I watched that, I um I saw there's just these pages called like there's one called international rowing memes, one called GB rowing memes. They are so funny. Um, I think the ability of rowers to sort of find fun and and laugh at laugh at the sport because it is when you take a step back and we can get so consumed in it. And you can take a step back and realize that's actually, we do something really hilarious with a really great and peculiar bunch of people. Um, I think the community in rowing is really strong. Now, if I, from this is all from my point of view, I've, I can't speak for anyone else, but I've been a rower now for 17 years and I've always felt welcome at any rowing club I've ever been to, whether I'm there as a, guest or racing or if I want to row there if I go back to Maidenhead there's always nice people who remember me from being a little boy and if I go to any local regatta you'll see all these familiar faces there's people you kind of recognize and you can't think why but they're they're all there it's like this kind of group of people that come together all over the country there's a few certain people who have supported me for a long long time like um, my coaches. When I was young, Tom Jost, Rob Davies, my dad, um, Robin Dowell at Borley's, um, all the guys at Leander, and also special shout out to Di Binley. Who, when I was young, <laughs> she was just she. It wasn't a regatta. I, I think I tweeted this the other day. that like it wasn't it wasn't a regatta if you didn't go to the Rock the Boat tent and see Di. Yeah. Um, and then pester my dad to try and buy me something, or, or <laughs> to buy me something from her from her shop. I think that community is strong. I think that what we could do better as rowers within that community is try and moan a bit less now i'm the first to moan i always find problems as there's always something you can think oh that's not done very well like i was saying about head races like it's frustrating it is frustrating when it takes ages to get results and stuff like that but for the most part rowing is done by volunteers and the clubs are run by volunteers the most races are run by volunteers and it's people all working really, really hard to try and put on great events and help people, help people enjoy the sport. So I think we could, we could do better at moaning less. Um, I think that British rowing and well, I think, yeah, British rowing could do better is kind of what we touched on earlier and focusing on all parts of the sport. So I think that everyone needs to feel valued and i think that the sort of the sense that i get from club rowers is that they they think that british rowing is all about the gb rowing team and that's that's not the way that paying members should or would want to feel and uh, i'm also on the on the board at british rowing and i know that that's not how british rowing see it They, they don't they don't see it as just the rowing team, just the rowing team there. They are trying to do all these different initiatives and community projects and trying to do things for the club rowers. Um, but I think that they could, st- there's a lot that British rowing can still do for that. But the thing that I'd like to see most is a bigger interaction between international athletes with recreational rowers, club rowers, junior rowers, all of that. I, if I could give my vision, is that we'd have a final trials that's open and involved for the senior rowing championships. We would also have a British rowing team entering at provincial heads through the winter yeah. and <laughs> and <laughs> occasional regattas, and also turning up to race in like the selected boats before the first World Cup or something at, I don't know, Wallingford or Met or something like that because I think, um, you know, it's a good to chance to race under huge pressure because you you better win if you're meant to be the, the rich team. And also it just gives everyone a chance to see you, race you, you know, get to meet you. And and it, for you, it's a chance to be part of the rowing community. Um, like when I said I really wanted to row at Maidenhead for when I could finally row after lockdown, I rode at Maidenhead, I rode in Henley a few times. Um, I love being back on the river somewhere where it's not just about performance it's not just about the British rowing team it's not just about trying to win the Olympics it's people going out rowing because they enjoy it or because it's their way of staying fit or because their friends are there or whatever reason there's loads of people that that love to row for, for many different reasons.
1: And I just asked one question before Lewin does his usual bow side holding stroke sides heads under um, comment to finish the, the interview with. You said at the very start that rowing, rowing was fun. And when you finished your international career, you'll go back to it because it's, ob- it's, obviously, the, it's obviously the sport of your heart and the sport of your soul. You're a full international, you're an Olympian, you're operating at an, an incredibly high level where the demands are, are massive you handle it with a huge amount of grace and poise is it still fun
2: it is fun I do at times find it stressful and there are times when it's not fun I didn't if, if I'm totally honest last winter I wasn't having my best winter performances I was really struggling and and then like, I was not anywhere near my best when I was on the yoga or things like that and I was finding it and then the more, the harder I tried, it was like the worse I got, and I really wasn't finding that fun. And I guess it's easier to find it fun when you're when you're doing well. But since since the um, lockdown got announced, so we, we that was just in March. It was like just after a really heavy, intense selection period. We'd had like final trials, loads of seat racing, all of that, and then our sort of team was settled. And then a couple of days later, everything shut down. During that time away and training on my own and training mostly in a garage. I've really started to find some fun in it again, like loads of fun in it again. And now I'd say I'm really, really loving it. I do miss, I still miss training like on the river. I really miss that. And I do miss being rowing in a club, but at the moment I'm also really privileged that I'm training somewhere where we are seen as elite athletes and able to keep, stay open so i'm really i feel really really lucky because i understand there's you know thousands of rowers around the country who are hugely frustrated right now and aren't going to be able to do it and that's gutting because uh, rowing's rowing such a big part of my life and if it was something i wasn't able to do i'd be i'd be gutted especially when you know single sculling is one of the most social distance things you can do
0: right well i i thought that was i thought that was brilliant and frankly Something of a breath of fresh air after, after our last interviews, which had been incredibly important, but very intense and quite dark. And, and I, I thought this was, this was a perfect palate cleanser um, for, for the podcast to talk to a man who clearly loves his sport, is in his element, and is just, you know, really epitomizes something actually generosaic how important the joy of sport is. And uh, I, I, I really, really enjoyed that chat. It was one of those things that you come away from and you're you're just that little bit happier.
1: I think we have to clarify that when we when we come out of those chats and we say, that was brilliant, what we're actually talking about is not so much Lewin and myself, but we're talking about, I guess, who have all been uniformly excellent. And Jack was just... A breath of fresh air, loves the sport, takes a huge amount of joy and pleasure in the sport, takes a huge amount of joy and pleasure in his role of as captain of Leander. It was wonderful to be able to have a chat with someone like that, because we tend to see our rowing heroes as these gods and goddesses on the Mount Olympus heading off to the Olympics, and they're tough and they're gnarled and they're battle-hardened and they're they're, you know, they're they so, they're basically Vikings with dry skackers and Jack just came across as, as lovely and approachable and the sort of person that you'd like to go for a paddle with and then have a cup of tea and a bun with. I, th- I thought he was lovely. All of the ideas that we had, the NFL-style draft system so that, that, that every club in the country gets an international for a season, the thought of GB internationals rocking up to Runcorn or to Nottingham or to Rutherford and just jumping in a boat so people can see them, Jack was on board with all of that. And, and, and for that... He has. He will always have my vote. Not that I have one at Leander, but if I did, he would have it.
0: And and I think again, this possibly should be going out to uh, to Mark Davies if he's listening. That um, this this general idea of spreading the talent in British rowing is uh, is going far and wide now. That it's quite it's clearly quite keen amongst athletes and and club rowers. So. Um, Maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe if you're listening, Mark, you know, um, our DMs are open if you want to come and discuss this idea.
1: Well, well Jack did say, you know, he, he hoped that the people at British Rowing who listened to us, now that implies that someone at British Rowing does listen to us. I have a gut feeling that it may be their lawyer, that they may be amassing evidence um, against us, but it, it could be some kind of community liaison or, or programming officer who's going, actually... They're a little bit rough around the edges, these boys. One of them has a Northumbrian accent. You know, Jack said, by all means, apply, but we'll make sure that he never actually makes it past the gates. Uh, but maybe, maybe they've got some good ideas here. But what I, what I loved about Jack was just the fact that he is, he's a proper international. He's an Olympian. He, and yet he likes the idea of just jumping in a boat with some people and going for a paddle. He's a scholar who says, I love rowing with people.
0: Yes. Happy, happy place is the bow seat of a quad. Um, that, that one's going to stick with me for a while. And I am, yeah, genuinely happy that we had that chat. I'm not sure I've got anything else to add to that one, really.
1: I can't really add to it, other than I'm amazed at how much the podcast has grown from its early beginnings. I know that we're only 11 or 12 episodes in, if you, if you count the Jürgen Gate episode. But we've had some wonderful guests, and Jack was another addition to that. I am learning so much on this podcast about a sport that I thought that I I knew, and I'm I'm learning about its diversity and its nuances and its characters and its colour and flavour, and it's just been an absolute joy to be part of it.
0: Stroke side holding, bow side stepping out. Good night, ladies and gentlemen.